Welcome to Ing Podcast, a production of Menno Media's Leader Magazine. Our world is increasingly complex, fast-paced, and divided. How are people of faith bringing their best selves to the world each day? How are we leading, growing, and being as people of God? Ing Podcast is a place to share insights and stories from individuals creatively engaging the present and moving into the future. On today's episode, Ing host Dennis Edwards sits down with Reverend Dr. Rose Lee Norman, who serves as the pastor of formation at Sanctuary Covenant Church, a Black-led, Black-centered, urban, multi-ethnic church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This perception of followership is something we avoid because of how it's perceived. It's perceived as weak and passive and mindless. And, and really, it's anything that a, anything a strong leader is, a follower is seen as it's deficient. If a, a leader is strong-willed and, and aggressive, you know, then a follower is, is, is passive and, and the exact opposite. Logically speaking, though, you know, a leader can't exist without followers. And certainly, you know, any strategic consideration should account for followership and how kind of the broader vision of any institution or entity impacts the mission or the work. And certainly as Christians, you know, Jesus, uh, his, one of his first commands to his disciples was to come follow me. We'll hear more from Pastor Rose about her work and research around the topic of white followership. Hi, I'm Dennis Edwards, and welcome to Ing Podcast. I am thrilled today because I'm having a conversation with my dear friend and former colleague in pastoral ministry, Reverend Dr. Rose Lee Norman. Pastor Rose and I served together at the Sanctuary Covenant Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Currently, her title there is Associate Pastor of Formation. So, Pastor Rose, welcome. How are you doing? Oh, thank you so much, Pastor Dennis. I am doing well, and it is such a joy to be on this conversation, having this conversation with you today. Well, I'm glad you could do it. And congratulations on defending your Doctor Mm -hmm. of Ministry dissertation at Boston University. Yay. Yay. Uh, (laughs) And I do want to talk to you about that work because I really Mm -hmm. think it's it's important work. But before we get into that, I'm hoping people who don't know you could know a little bit more about you if you'd be willing to share some of your faith journey, some of your educational background, ministry experience, whatever you you can share to help people know you better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I grew up in Minnesota, outside of the Twin Cities, in a pretty homogenous small town. And I grew up in the Catholic faith in just an extremely warm Catholic parish. Um, when I hear some people talking about their adverse experiences in the Catholic Church, which are absolutely valid, very real, but that was not my uh, experience growing up. Um, I had just a wonderful um, experience of, um, yes, nuns um, who were very just um, devoted to their faith, um, very warm, incredible female leaders that I saw leading in our parish, um, devout in their faith, and even um, leading in some boundary-breaking sort of ways in the Catholic Church. And so they were very much my examples growing up and um, grew up with my my parents and two older brothers. And um, it was in that Catholic church um, where I received a call to ministry. Wow. I was, yeah, I was just a junior uh, in high school, well, junior high, in junior high. Um, I think I was maybe in seventh grade. We were at a um, some sort of like a confirmation retreat in the Catholic faith. Um, you know, confirmation is a little bit different than maybe the Protestant faith, but mm. um, we, I was at a, at this retreat, sitting in this old wooden pew, and it was after um, the sacrament of reconciliation, which is where you know you go and share some of your sins with the priest. And as they're sitting and praying, and I looked up at the pulpit, and I felt a clear sense, even God's audible voice saying, you know, that I am calling you to use your voice and 
in ministry for for the gospel. And you can imagine, you know, as a seventh grader <laughs> um, receiving that call, and especially in the Catholic Church, looking yeah. at that pulpit and saying, "That's not a space for my voice, though." Right, right. You know, wow. yeah. So it was really just kind of like a moment of confusion in some ways, confirmation, because I was hearing God's voice and, and it just became really a journey of discerning. What does this mean? How do I do this? Like, where is, where do I even go to practice this? Cause I don't have, you know, I can't see myself doing this, um, in the church that I'm at right now. Wow. So, you know, that led me to, some just a wonderful journey. Um, yeah. Went through my college years at Covenant Bible College, which um, is through our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no longer a school anymore, unfortunately, but it basically was a one year program for students to study the Bible. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, uh, that's what I want to do. So I might as well try <laughs> this, you know? And it was really an affirming space. And I found women who were using their gifts, who were leading in ministry as clear examples that I could do that too. So eventually found myself at North Park University, which I know that you know that place well now as you're teaching (laughs) at the seminary, Um, and really just found a home in the Evangelical Covenant Church. So Hmm. yeah, from there, yeah, Mm -hmm. went to Fuller Seminary um, and been serving in... um, urban um, multi-ethnic ministry now for over 15 years, but 10 years now at Sanctuary Covenant Church in Minneapolis. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, I I appreciate that journey. I mean, I I don't know very many women who feel, well, for one, who are in a place where their call to ministry is affirmed. We could talk about that Mm -hmm. a little bit more later, actually. I want to get into that. But also in the Roman Catholic Church, just the... um, that that the uh, you know the pastoral ministry and priesthood is certainly not available to women, and uh, mm-hmm. to get that call in a Catholic setting is pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's a pretty unique journey, and I'm I'm grateful for your your voice. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, your context right now in Minneapolis. I know it a little mm-hmm. bit, having been there for six <laughs> years, and. And uh, and while 2020 has been challenging for everybody, of course, yes. with the pandemic and protests and trying to figure out what's going on here, uh, Minneapolis was in the news quite a bit because of the murder of George Floyd and then subsequent efforts to reallocate uh, r- resources for transforming the police and other matters have put you guys mm-hmm. in the news again. I'm wondering if you could speak about that context about the atmosphere, what it was like in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. what it might be now, at least over the last several months. Absolutely. And I think honestly, just now I'm beginning to have words to what mm-hmm. what we did experience over the summer of 2020. Because yeah. in certainly in urban ministry, it's not uncommon to experience these crisis moments in a community. And we were used to, um, to responding in, um, yeah, responding in those moments. But after George Floyd's murder, it, it, it almost was a tailspin of reaction after reaction of what was happening with each event. I mean, it felt like almost hourly, you know, more, um, more activity, more news, more things were happening. And so it, it felt as though like there wasn't a space at the moment to respond mm. to the full grief of what we were experiencing. Yeah. It, because, because there was so much, um, we were reacting to. Yeah. A lot of moving parts. Yeah. Okay. There was. Yeah. Absolutely. So I would say now in thinking about being a resident here in Minneapolis, there are so many nights when it felt like as a citizen, as a neighbor, as a person in a specific space, you know, you feel to a relative degree at home and where you reside, at least you should. Right. And I certainly um, felt that as a, uh, as a, 
North Sider. But during um, during everything that happened that summer, it felt for the first time as if, you know, with so many people coming from the outside, white supremacists coming in, all these um, this just different acts of terror, um, there were moments when it felt as though, like, I... I feel like an outsider in this space. That's my home because so many people are coming into it, you know? And so it, it, it felt surreal in that sort of way, I guess. But there was, of course, lots of relief. There's a lot of activity happening, especially at Sanctuary. Yeah. And so it, it felt very busy. It felt like that relief response mode. Wow. Well, you know, thank you for sharing that. I, I, I can appreciate that. And I, I, I can feel some of that. I mean, even my, in my years of ministry in D.C., and I was in D.C. for almost 18 years, there was there were oh. so many times when people came into the to the city. Of course, they wanted to make mm-hmm. their voices known, or they. But sometimes it was um, uh, it could be an intimidating presence that you could feel in your own city that you're exactly. yeah, that something else is going on. And you can almost feel disconnected. So I yeah I appreciate that. Um, that's mm-hmm. making me think about the kind of ministry I've been involved in all my life. I mean, I've been in, uh, New York, DC and Minneapolis, um, for my pastoral mm-hmm. years. And we're always confronting issues like police reform, uh, educational mm-hmm. issues, achievement gaps, resources for people in poverty. Uh, so many life issues that, um, are just right there in your face. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. considering your background, considering your ministry context and experience, do you find that there's a, a different perspective, maybe a, just a different focus that 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 churches have uh, in the city versus other contexts? I mean, I, I think everybody's contextualizing, but part of the part of the mm-hmm. tension we're feeling, I think, sometimes in our society is that people don't understand uh, these different contexts. You have anything to say to that? Yes, absolutely. So first of all, while I grew up in a small town, obviously haven't practiced ministry as a leader. And so I only have a context for an urban space. But growing up in uh, a smaller town, certainly, especially in a Eurocentric theology, was certainly shaped by very much that future-oriented perspective of ministry you know, saving souls, evangelism for the eternal, but not Uh, necessarily looking at, you know, what our faith says to the day-to-day lives. What are the needs that need saving right now? And so uh, I would say that that has been a a difference that I've um, experienced, um, as well as, you know, I think there are times when Christianity is certainly presumed to be a faith that we're supposed to get ourselves right, you know, of course. And there's, there's parts that are, are good about that. We want to exemplify God's goodness, of course, but I think it becomes the extreme that we try to separate ourselves from the needs or the troubles of others. But the reality is, is in the city, you really can't ignore your neighbor's needs. You can't ignore, or at least it's a lot harder, right? Yeah. And so I think it, it forces a more robust theology, a deeper theology that Mm -hmm. attends to the here and now as well as the eternal and forever. And I think also what I've learned as certainly as a white woman, that there's just a greater collective emphasis living in a city. You see how we are all intricately bound to each other and mm-hmm. that what we do in our individual lives affects one another. And I think you see it in a more acute way in the city. Yeah. Wow. You know, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with that. I, I did ministry for years with some folks, this is back in D.C., who grew up on... Um, on farms in rural contexts, mm-hmm. and and um and my Mennonite friends uh, could relate to this in that a lot of times the similarities between rural and mm-hmm. urban ministry are more are more well there are more similarities there than even with suburban ministry because yeah. of that collective collectivism mm-hmm. you talked about that sense of common uh, situation common experiences 
the idea of working together. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> and not to stereotype, but sometimes when I think of Mennonite folks, some people think of Amish and, and, mm-hmm. and will confuse mm-hmm. them. But but there was a sense of working together, whether it's that image of building a barn <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or helping in some way that I think um, there's a, a similarity in urban ministry that some people miss. But there, but yeah. but you're right. There's that sense that we're in this together that can be mm-hmm. missed in the suburbs. You yeah. mentioned your own uh, lens, as it were, as a as a mm-hmm. as a white woman, and and you've been thoughtful about that, about who mm-hmm. you are and where you are, and I've really appreciated that about you. Um, so here you are in North Minneapolis, which is some people listening would know, but it's a part of of the Twin Cities that has more racial diversity than many other parts, I guess you could say, and a larger percentage of African Americans. So you're in a context that's not predominantly white. Um, mm-hmm. How how what are some of your thoughts about that, and how did it take you to your doctor of ministry work? It was probably about four years ago now that I was in a space of ministry where I was just feeling really burned out, and I was wondering. I think I was really asking the question of what it meant for me as a white woman to be in a, a leader in mm-hmm. a multi ethnic church, yeah. and I think at the time I was wondering if it was even appropriate. And I I use that word specifically uh, because I wondered if it was helpful. Um, And so I knew that I wanted to continue studying, certainly. And Pastor Dennis, you were certainly influential in Mm -hmm. just working toward um, this doctoral degree. And I was really drawn to the doctor of ministry program at Boston University because it was in transformational leadership. Mm-hmm. I felt in some ways as a woman that there weren't always quite the same opportunities to be maybe mentored in leadership that there mm-hmm. were for men in Christian ministry. I certainly received great mentorship from you because you were sensitive to that reality. But again, as a white woman and in this program, they really were asking what transformation is needed in your context Mm. and how can you most authentically lead that? And I was really wrestling with that question of where is my voice in an appropriate way in a multi-ethnic church? And Mm. so I... I began to, and that was about at the same time, Pastor Dennis, when our pastoral team read the book, The Elusive Dream. Oh, yes. Yes. Do you remember that? I do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So this book is by sociologist Dr. Corey Edwards. It is just an incredible um, ethnographic study of multi-ethnic churches. And what she was doing was she was seeking to study how these churches achieved their aim of multi-ethnicity and racial justice. She was assuming, like we all probably would, that they're seeking that. But of Mm -hmm. course, what she found, however, was this startling, but probably not also too surprising truth that these multiracial churches were actually perpetuating the very racial inequalities that they sought to abolish. And, um, so not only were they not meeting their aim, but they were actually working against it. Yeah. Now, for the black pastors in the room, I'm sure this was obvious. Mm. And they probably, you know, you and Pastor Edron probably didn't see that you needed a book to tell you this hegemonic reality, you know, was yeah. there. Yeah. But for at least for me and my experience, it was a bit eye-opening. And yeah. Maybe in some ways I might be ashamed to say so, but I knew that the multi-ethnic church had work to do, absolutely. But her particular findings that these churches weren't just stalling their vision of racial justice, but were actually contributing to the problem, that was really significant for me. And so in that time, um, I I was changing roles a bit. You know, I was in children's ministry, family Mm -hmm. ministry. Um, As staff changes were happening, I started to work in more broader formation. I was also starting to preach more, thankfully for your (laughs) encouragement (laughs) in pushing me because I didn't always want to, but... (laughs) Um, well, but you're a really good preacher. I'm just going to say oh, that right now. But anyway, go ahead. 
Well, and I knew that I couldn't read her words and not change my own behavior. Mm-hmm. Like that would be irresponsible of me in my vocational vows that I've taken. And so um, I, yeah, I was, I, I knew that I had to, you know, incorporate this more, this learning and, and, parallel at this time, I was beginning to see more white congregants, not surprisingly, but pushing back to more direct condemnation of racism. Now, given this was also once Trump was initially elected. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And as we were specifically speaking out about white supremacy, it really became clear to me that in the formation of our white congregants, there was a lot more work that needed to be done not just in, you know, quote unquote, convincing them that racism is wrong or justice is linked to our faith, but I really began asking, well, what is expected of white people at at a multi-ethnic church, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because I I think, you know, like, I'm sure you've experienced this. A lot of white folks come into a multi-ethnic church Mm -hmm. and it it essentially checks a box for them, you know? Um, Not, And I don't want to I don't want to generalize at all. Yeah. Um, but, but at times, you know, their membership can be kind of a, lo- a single response to racism. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You are. Yeah. I, well, I'm appreciating your this journey because it's helping me. Be, I remember many of those steps that you were making. Um, mm-hmm. And just to kind of fill out a little bit even more in Corey Edwards' work, the, uh, the reality that I think sometimes white people, when they come to a multi-ethnic church, are saying, I don't want to be like I mm-hmm. like the church of my childhood or or this, you know, overwhelmingly white church that I'm used to. And and I won't I won't assign any negative motives, but I I have seen some people come because uh in my years of ministry they viewed African American worship as somewhat exciting mm-hmm. or exotic or something different there. But when it came to making important decisions about the church's resources or leadership, there was still a sense that white people acted as if they should be in control, Mm -hmm. even though in many cases, folks were commuting in from other neighborhoods. So the whole question of what does it mean in a multi-ethnic context, and I'm glad you've been saying that because I, I use the word urban to talk about diverse, but to be explicit, we're talking about Mm -hmm. a multi-ethnic church or a church that strives to be um, it's a it's a great question to ask. What does it mean for white people to be in those contexts? I'm starting to see in the last couple of years more pastors thinking about this. So you mm-hmm. wrote your 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 dissertation on what you called white followership. Um, mm-hmm. I, I want I want you to publish it someday so people can read it. But can you give us a mm-hmm. taste of what you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have to back up a bit because. Okay. There's a bit explaining. I think it's important first to identify particularly who sanctuary is because uh, it yeah. does okay. give some context to to it. Because Sanctuary Covenant Church was it was founded in 2003 by Reverend Dr. Ephraim Smith, and right. he founded it with a, a very particular identity and vision that we would be a black-led, black-centered urban, multi-ethnic church planted and rooted in North Minneapolis. Now that, for one thing, it's a mouthful, (laughs) (laughs) but there are particularities to each of those Mm -hmm. statements. You know, there's an identity, there's implications for each of those. And so my question was, if we're working in light of Dr. Corey Edwards's work, that many multi-ethnic churches are actually, um, not reaching, you know, their vision, how is it that we might actually um, live into our vision of being a Black-led, Black-centered, urban, multi-ethnic church? And so it began, of course, the question for me as a white woman, well, um, not to center white people, but what does that mean then for white people? Because they can't just be a passive congregant, of course. And it has to be more than that. So in in my time at Boston University, I was thinking about how, again, like, how do I help form our white congregants toward our vision? And so I 
it was in a class that we were talking about research methods. And I don't even necessarily remember what we were talking about at the time, but the term followership came up Uh and immediately it became like this Holy spirit moment where I knew that was the gap between where we are at the problem and where we're hoping to go as the solution. And this could be one, not, not the summation of it, but this Mm -hmm. could be one part of the gap to help us turn the tides um, toward our vision. And so I began a a journey of understanding what does followership mean? Because I've never even necessarily thought of that. Mm. Uh, And so followership is, yeah, it's an interesting term for us to consider in Western America where leadership is 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 what we seek to become as people. Um, and so it's interesting to consider, again, followership. Um, in 2002, the luxury car brand Audi came out with a marketing campaign, and they called it Never Follow. And it actually quickly became more than just a marketing slogan. In fact, their VP stated that this is not just a tagline, but this is a national direction for the ethos of our company for the brand itself. And I think Mm -hmm. that really illustrates Western American, especially white people, their perspective of followership, that it's something to avoid. In fact, at all costs, because just consider the sheer mass amount of leadership um, products and Mm -hmm. paraphernalia and, and resources, you know, that are out there compared to even a mention of followership, you know, I mean, can you even imagine someone saying that they're going to a conference on followership or, or going to a school and say that I'm going to study finance and followership, you know, Um, (laughs) it's, it's certainly something that we, this perception of followership is something we avoid because of how it's perceived. It's perceived as weak and passive and mindless and and really it's anything that a anything a strong leader is a follower is seen as it's deficient you know so um if a, a leader is strong-willed and and aggressive you know then a follower is is, is passive and and uh, the exact opposite and so however yeah. logically speaking though you know, a leader can't exist without followers, though. Right, right. And certainly, you know, any strategic consideration should account for followership and how kind of the broader vision of any institution or entity impacts the mission or the work. And certainly as Christians, you know, Jesus, uh, his one of his first commands to his disciples was to come follow me. Yeah. And so I think it began... Um, a journey of personal reflection as well as vocational reflection, just to pause to understand like what might followership be in that way. So mm -hmm. we're going to take a quick break now to thank our sponsors and invite you to consider sponsoring Ing podcast. You can also play a big part in helping us spread the word about this podcast by giving our new Facebook page a like and sharing your favorite Ing podcast episodes with friends encouraging them to subscribe and join this movement of leading, growing, and being as people of faith. Thank you for your continued support of this podcast. In challenging times, how do we prepare for tomorrow? Invest in the path ahead with hope and sharing, love and caring, and with help from Everence. Many of us are taking it day by day, step-by-step. How can we make room for financial strategies and the Holy Spirit to help guide us for the longer term? Financial services for a purpose. Visit us today at everance.com. So as I continued looking at followership, I found the work and research of Dr. Patsy Baker Blackshear. And she's an African-American woman who who has quite an amazing resume. She has worked in Baltimore public schools to most recently her role in the U.S. Department of Labor. And in her work, she does some really interesting work at looking at what followership is as it relates to organizations. And so she's looking at what are the behaviors and some of the actions that are exhibited in followers. 
And so she, uh, in her work, she found um, that a lot of active followers, what she calls an exemplary follower, Mm. it's not, of course, what we would consider as, you know, a passive, mindless kind of character of followers that we are often, you know, again, trying to avoid. But instead, these followers exhibit behaviors in, in, in action, such as willing to set their ego aside and be a team player or having internal initiative to actively work toward a mission or even having staying power when things get really hard staying with it because they believe in the mission. Mm -hmm. She also found that, you know, they're, they're um, willing to take risks or they're proactive as a problem fixer instead of reactive as a problem identifier, which let the church say amen to that one. Yeah, my goodness. Yes. Yes. Um, She also saw, you know, that they're adaptable and flexible. And so I began to look at her work and I really wanted to contextualize this for the multi-ethnic church and go beyond with some of the current or um, historical kind of lexicon of social justice work. Cause a lot of it, we've, we've talked about words such as, uh, you know, being an advocate that white people are supposed to advocate for mm. or being or an, an, ally. Ally. Yeah. an ally, right? Yes. An ally or a co-conspirator. There's so many different terms that, right. cause I think we're trying to figure out what do white people do in this <laughs> work, you know? And, and what I felt though in all of them is that the language still didn't the language still didn't recognize the power that white people have and working toward racial justice has to name that power, address it, and have some reorientation shifting of it. And so I feel like white followership does that. It allows a reorientation to happen. It allows white Christians to understand their power um, and it allows a different voice to lead, a different cultural expression to take the center stage. So, So in my dissertation, you know, I use Black Shears' definition to, to really contextualize what that might look like. So, which, you know, includes simple things, but really difficult things for white Christians, like understanding our power and yielding it. That in and of itself is difficult. Um, Being active in this lifelong journey of anti-racism, taking these risks that we need to and losing that privilege that comes with it. Um, And also developing a communal, identity with other white Christians, because I think that's one part that is missing um, toward this pursuit. And so if I could define, you know, white followership largely, it's this reorientation of power that asks white Christians, especially in a multi-ethnic church, to understand their power, not only just broadly in society, but particularly in a multi-ethnic church, Mm. and then postures themselves to allow different cultural forms of leadership to be centered, building this collective familial identity with other white Christians, and actually giving them active practices towards yielding that normative white power that they have. My goodness, that's, that's awesome. It's, it's, it's a, powerful analysis and also extremely practical. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times people will say casual things about multi-ethnic ministry without looking deeper and seeing Mm -hmm. what's at work, how power is working in those, in those spaces. So yeah, I look forward to more people becoming acquainted with, with your analysis. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to keep on talking about this notion of race and power um, you specifically apply your analysis to the multi-ethnic church. Um, but I'd like to press, push out a little bit and think mm-hmm. about these racial divisions that are in our society right now. I, there are some folks on, uh, on one end, you might say at an extreme, that I think have stoked the flames of racism. Um, so I want to ask you, well, for one, if you see it that way, but also what do you think racial healing might look like in the church locally, but then also more broadly in our society? 
Yes, well, I'd absolutely agree. That is definitely um, happening right now. It, it has been historically. So yeah. yes, I definitely agree with that. And I think, you know, racial healing, I can't be the one, of course, as a white woman to dictate what that healing is. But I can say that in order to have racial healing, I think first and foremost, which isn't something new, but we have to have truth telling. I think we have to tell the truth about what has happened, what is happening, what's been perpetuated, and the complicity that's been embedded mm. in, oh. in, in racism, in white supremacy. So I think a truth telling has to happen. I also yeah. think that, of course, a true repentance to confess what's been done, a turning back to God. And as the church collectively turns back to God to look to the marginalized, to lead us in bringing us back to the authentic way of Jesus. And and that's your book, Pastor Dennis, Might from yeah, the Margins. And so yeah. you're, you're definitely the one to speak on that. But I do think of the story of Zacchaeus mm-hmm. and just yeah. his willingness to be called out and name sin, yeah. to repent, to change mm-hmm. actions, but also to have space for actual reparations to take place as well. I, I right. wonder how Zacchaeus might be an example for the white church um, to, yeah. to, to go a different way. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's helpful. I I agree with you, and I'm I'm starting to hear a few more voices think about or articulate um, the reparations that's happening with mm-hmm. that we see there with Zacchaeus. I I would love to see more conversation, but not just conversation, of course, but action related to power and race, which gets me to thinking about what's what's uh, happening in some social media circles because of uh, the Southern Baptist denomination, you know, their seminaries Mm -hmm. agreed to, to not teach on critical race theory or intersectionality. Those terms are becoming more common, even in evangelicals lexicon, even though I think a lot of people don't know formally what those things are. They have a sense of it. Um, Mm -hmm. But this, but this concern that talking about the intersection of race and gender or, or talking about the power dynamics related to race and critical race theory or some, or, or, or other expansions of those ideas that they have to be denounced. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. when you gave your answer, you talked a lot about what the gospel teaches and what's in the scripture. Why do you think some Christians have the need to denounce those ideas of intersectionality and critical race theory, for example? I think denouncing something gives them power back for mm. something that's changing. So I think it's a an action that's become learned for sure because of the power that they're so um, used to having. So I think yeah. that, but I, I also think it's, I do think it's steeped in fear of change um, and control and, um, yeah, sharing, sharing a platform. I don't know that there's a collective sharing that I don't think is, Mm. they're willing to give up. Well, I, I mean, I can track with you. I mean, power sharing. I mean, those things are related Mm -hmm. to what you were talking about earlier about following. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I guess in my mind, they tie together because I, I have had a hard time seeing, uh, white, Christians uh, in in power, so that that would be Mm -hmm. institutional, you know, in churches, denominations and such, um, think that they can uh, be uh, receiving from others Mm -hmm. who are not like them, folks who've been in the margins. They might learn a lesson or two or take some kind of uh, good, uh, you know, some moral advice, you know, but it's almost patronizing in a way, you know, rather than and then yep. submission, you know, those kinds of ideas. So I, I, mm-hmm. I think that there is a fear also. I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with you on that. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I, I, as I brought up this notion of intersectionality, it's making me think about gender. And, mm-hmm. and you've talked about your call as a woman to lead and you're sensitive to your race in leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm appreciating all of that. 
But we've talked about this before about being a Christian feminist, and uh, mm-hmm. and I'm curious if you have a thought or a working definition of what that is. And then I want to talk a little bit more about being a, a woman in pastoral leadership. Sure. I think there was probably a time in my journey that I had a well thought out, structured, kind of wordy sort of definition because I felt like I had to defend it, defend uh-huh. what Christian feminism was. Mm-hmm. I I felt as though I've moved past maybe even defining it to so I feel like, like it's less of a an intellectual rationalization or um, reasoning. And instead, it's to me, Christian feminism is an embodiment <laughs> in many ways. I think it's a posture that I, as a woman, in the image of God that's been instilled in me is not any um, greater or less than a man's. And it's caused me to see the full dignity of the image of others as well, the image mm. of God and others. And so to me, it, in many ways, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but when you've maybe read something or been formed by, by something, it's not just an epistemological exercise, but it, it truly causes you to move differently in the world that you live in and the ways in which you you show up in the world. And to me, that's what Christian feminism has done. It's opened up the world and the kingdom and God's mission in a much broader way than what I was socialized and taught to see. And so I see it a lot more as just how I operate in the world and how I see other people Mm -hmm. Than a definition. Oh, my goodness, that's that's great. But of course, mm-hmm. you know, I've known you for years, so mm-hmm. I didn't expect anything less than a really thoughtful answer like that. <laughs> but that really is thoughtful. I mean, I I mm-hmm. I know there's a tendency at times for folks to be able to just put stuff in their heads. And I like what mm-hmm. you said about the epistemology. I mean, that's that's where evangelicals operate a lot of times, yeah, and I think that's yeah. why our gospel can often just sound like some preposition or propositions rather, Mm -hmm. and not um, a way of being, as I try to argue in my own writing. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've, I've been appreciating your journey and, and Mm I, and you've been gracious to let me say it like that because I'm older and and I can (laughs) talk about it as if I've been observing you, but, but -hmm. I've been journeying with you too. And I have found your, your, your preaching to be biblical, be culturally informed, to be practical. I've really appreciated uh, sitting under your teaching that way. Mm -hmm. But I can't know what it feels like to be a woman preaching in either evangelical or evangelical adjacent kind of churches. Um, What word do you have for women who might be wrestling with their own call of pastoral ministry? And um, or maybe to men who have who who uh, who are listening? I mean, I, I hadn't thought about this before, but there may be some men who, who are hearing women articulate a call and don't know what to do with it. So, mm-hmm. I guess, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, when I think about an encouraging word for women, I certainly reflect on my own journey and the the moments on the journey where I felt the spirit calling me to this work, but then coming back to myself and feeling these fears and insecurities or wonderings in assuming that was the answer instead of God speaking. And so Mm. what I mean by that is that I would encourage women to take any wondering or fears, doubts, or anxieties and simply reflect on whether those are true true curiosities about your calling and wonderings about um, maybe I'm not cut out for this or, or I don't want to preach and be in front of people, or if those have been manufactured by a socialization within patriarchy. And what I mean by that, through an example for myself, there were, I remember when I got the call to um, come to sanctuary at the yeah. time as the director of children's ministry. I was in California yeah. 
And I remember telling my husband, I'm going to say yes, but I'm never going to preach ever. (laughs) And I had already made up in my mind because I had Mm -hmm. such a Mm -hmm. fear of speaking in front of other people and, and, and not a simplistic fear of, you know, I just don't want to be in front of a lot of people. That's, that's part of it for sure. But it was more so it was this internalization of Mm. being told for years that it's a sin to speak. It's, um, it's, it's a sin to do these things. And so even somatically, like in my body, I'd internalize those things to almost have a, an inability to even speak and say, uh, and share the gospel truth. And so I, I used to think being afraid to preach was an indication that I wasn't called, but instead I realized that it was actually a byproduct of a social socialization and patriarchy that saw my voice in a diminished way. And so I'd invite women to interrogate those doubts and those fears, those anxieties that come up when you think about leading in pastoral ministry or any sort of elevated space um, where you're using your voice and to interrogate whether that's actually the spirit or if it's, again, this byproduct of the patriarchy, because I think it's so important to, to be reflective on that. Wow. Yes, indeed. Thank you. I, I can see um, parallels in my own life related to race in a sense mm-hmm. that I've had people, I've had my own fears and I've had mm-hmm. to wonder, are those fear, I had to, had to deal with them. I had to wonder if that's because I was, it's a dentist thing or it's because of a yeah. society thing. And, yes. uh, and you're, you're helping me to think about how that can apply uh, for our sisters who who are called to ministry, thank you yeah. so much for that. Well, mm-hmm. Pastor Rose, Doctor Rose, <laughs> I, I really appreciate our conversation. Is there anything that you would uh, want to share? I think about church emerging out of the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. What what practices we are relishing and experiencing, or lessons we may have learned? Anything you want to reflect on coming out of pandemic? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the pandemic, at least from my perspective at Sanctuary, it has it has forced us to live into our values in much deeper ways, not to simply state we're here for our community or um, we want to love our neighbor, but it has forced us to actually practice those values. Wow. And so I guess I hope, yeah, that we don't lose that, that we have a greater sense of urgency to live into those values that are contextual for each person's location, um, for sure. But I, I'm really hopeful that we'll, we'll hold on to what we've learned um, to, to be unwavering in uh, living out our values. Yeah. I hope that's true for all churches who've got mm-hmm. these lofty goals and values and mm-hmm. and don't turn too uh, self-centered when mm-hmm. when they're able to meet together, which is very exciting, but yeah. to uh, somehow get so insular, that could have mm-hmm. been our problem years ago, and I don't want it to be a problem again. Right. Um, are there other things that you want to share or anything you're working on or something that you're seeing happening in Christian circles that you're excited about? Anything at all? Sure. Well, I definitely feel as though I've um, ended one major milestone and project with the completion of my dissertation, which I'm so excited about. And I'm certainly trying to take your advice specifically, Pastor Dennis, to just celebrate and uh, just rest in the moment and the achievement. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm trying to do that. But um, I do hope to continue to roll out uh, this pathway of white followership at Sanctuary and to learn a lot of lessons and shift in um, as a leader in necessary ways as a result of that learning. Um, I do hope that potentially it could maybe become 
a book or a resource or something for people, but, um, we'll see, you know, we'll see what the Lord has. But I think what I'm most excited about, honestly, Pastor Dennis has been your book, Might From, Might from the oh, Margins. Wow. It has been ac- absolutely hmm. transformational for me and for our church. If you want to, if you want to dig deeper into this work of anti-racism, as well as just, um, the tra- trajectory of what the church I hope is on might from mm. the margins gives us an important word. So I simply mm. want to end by giving a I, shout out to your work. Well, I, I did not expect that, but thank you. I definitely <laughs> appreciate it. And I, mm. I, uh, yeah, I'm just grateful. I, mm. I'm grateful for our friendship, grateful for yeah. your ministry. And thank you so much. You know, I would love to see what you do turn into a curriculum of sorts. I mean, maybe that's mm-hmm. something that will happen down the road. But like we said, let's just enjoy this time yeah. of you finishing and, mm-hmm. and being doctor. Um, and then we'll see, like you said, what the Lord unfolds. Well, well yeah. Reverend Doctor... I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you so much. And and God's many blessings to you and your family. Amen. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. As always, we'd like to thank our guests and all who continue to support Ing Podcast. We'd like to thank Everence, a faith-based financial services organization, for their ongoing support of Ing Podcast. Today's episode was also supported by Mosaic Mennonite Conference, a community of congregations and nonprofit ministries committed to living like Jesus together in our broken and beautiful world. Find out more at mosaicmennonites.org. We'd like to give a special word of thanks to Larry Nolt from Key West, Florida for his ongoing support of Menno Media. If you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. Do you have a topic or someone you think should be interviewed on the podcast? Let us know by emailing theink at menomedia.org. Views and opinions expressed on Ing Podcast are those of our hosts and guests and may not represent that of Leader Magazine or Menno Media. Today's show was produced by me, Ben Weidman. Ing Podcast is a production of Menno Media, a nonprofit publisher that creates thoughtful Anabaptist resources to enrich faith in a complex world. To find out more, visit us online at menomedia.org.